Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Live from Las Vegas, it's time for you to be Talking Movies with America's most award-winning film critic, John Barber. You're being, John, you're being so gentle. I've heard you give reviews and you're so rough, you're saying. <laughs> How would you have evaluated your own work uh, in some of the films that you did prior to, uh, <laughs> prior to The Longest Shot? I mean, Much like... better than you, my friend. <laughs> Our next guest is one of those rare talents who has something to say and can say it funny. He's a writer-performer on the new Laugh-In and one of the most popular, outspoken, and entertaining personalities on the local news here in Los Angeles. He's won a half a dozen Emmys as a film critic and host of his own shows. Let's welcome Mr. John Barber, right over there. Hi, this is John Barber. Welcome to Talking Movies. And what a joy today a show is really going to be, because it's not just a, a treat of a couple of talents. It's an absolute buffet of talent. And Doug, how are you today? I am doing wonderfully well. Thank you, John. Now, I know, I know that uh, you bowl on the weekends, but I asked you because I know you love music. And you love to sing, and I've had a bunch of viewers say, listen, will that guy go to a karaoke and record something? Have you done that for us yet? Would you believe I haven't? I'm, and I, I'm remiss at that. I don't know if they're recording. Well, I haven't even taken the time to really go out and do that. I've kind of done bowling and left the music for later. <laughs> <laughs> well, I certainly wish you would. You know, Socrates said, the unexamined life isn't worth living. But what I say is a life that is not creative or involved with music is not worth living. And I must tell you, our featured guest today, if there were a Mount Rushmore for music in this country, he would be one of the first to adorn it. You are going to be stunned at the Wikipedia of wonderful work this man has done over the decades. I mean, in the 70s, he did the uh, he did the scores, the opening scores for bunches of our favorite uh, favorite shows: uh, Laverne and Shirley, Love Boat, uh, Love American Style, and even Monday Night Football. He's done over a hundred films. Can you believe that? I mean, just phenomenal. And uh, I think one of the First ones he might have done, I think might have been one of Jane Fonda's first films, Barbarella. Then he did another really good film, Nine to Five. And then Goodbye Columbus and The Last American Hero with an absolutely fabulous song called I Got a Name. He's got all kinds of awards and accolades, but I think to me, bigger than an Academy Award or an Oscar or Grammy or Tony or anything is a compliment paid to him by the Polish government. They asked him to create a concerto 
to be played this year in Poland by one of the greatest, greatest pianists in the world. And it's for the 200th anniversary of Frederick Chopin. You do not get any bigger than that. And thankfully the world will get to see him in a documentary to be released soon by another multi-talent. He is a writer, director, and producer, and he's done three wonderful shows that I loved on HBO. One was uh, 100 Voices, A Journey Home, an award winner, uh, A Bronx Tale, and the super Bob Einstein show. Now, so the composer has also written his own autobiography called Killing Me Softly. So there you go, a hinted who it is, because he has written the music to one of the greatest love songs in America. So by way of introduction, Doug, introduction, would you play just a little bit of that great song for me? Strumming my pain with his fingers, singing my life with his words, killing me softly with his song, killing me softly with his song, telling my whole life with his words, killing me softly with his song. It doesn't get more wonderful than that. And it doesn't get more wonderful for me to be able to introduce the composer, Charles Fox. Charles, how are you? And also at the same time, I have to introduce the man who is finally telling the documentary about your life, Danny Rose. Where are the both of you and how are the both of you? Um, I look great. I would just say that Danny Gold, just to yeah. not, not talk yeah. like Danny Rose. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I, you know, I didn't want to bring that up, but <laughs> it, it brought a smile to my face. There can't be an actual human being successful in this business whose <laughs> name is Danny Gold. That's the, uh, I think it's the name of the Woody Allen film, which was very, very funny. By Broadway Danny Rose, absolutely. Yeah, Broadway Danny Rose, that was it. Broadway Danny Rose, that's it. Well, so first of all, thank you so much for a lovely introduction. Um, it was, uh, been a big fan of yours, John, for many years. So it's great to be on the, uh, on the zoom with you and look forward to meeting in person one day. So and could I, could I start with you, Charles and, uh, Danny, if you don't mind just sitting there and listening a bit, because you'll get some of the same question. If they were making a movie about your life, Charles, where would it start? Where were you born? What were your parents like? Did you have siblings? And it seems to me, from the output of music of yours, you were born to be a musician, but did you wish to do anything else? No. Honestly, I, I never had any thoughts of doing anything but music. And, and actually, when I was born, uh, this is kind of family lore, but you might find it amusing. I was born with a bump in the back of my head that the doctor said to my mother, that was a music bump. Oh that, my God, you're kidding. Did you ever hear of that before? <laughs> I never no, did since. No, I never. That is funny. Yeah. Is there, were your parents or grandparents, anybody 
multi-talented musically? You know, my father, my father came from Poland, talk about Poland, uh-huh. and um, he played a mandolin. And he played his nice little tunes, little Jewish tunes and, you know, little songs. And uh, he was kind of known as the man with the mandolin, not professionally. It's just something he loved to do. So that was my musical background, hearing the the mandolin. Um, Just that simple. And Uh, what did you first start tinkling around with as a kid? And how young were you? And what sort of music or musicians inspired you to go in the direction you were going? I started playing the piano when I was around eight or nine years old. And actually, my piano teacher was a very lovely woman. who li- We lived on the ground floor of an apartment house in the Bronx. My piano teacher lived on the fifth floor. And I would simply go up to take the elevator to the fifth floor with $2 neatly tucked <laughs> in my shirt pocket like this, my lesson. And, and she was a wonderful woman. And uh, I took lessons with her until I went to the high school of music and art when I was about 13. And um, as far as influences, um, you know, she actually took me to my first opera. She was also a teacher at a college of music. Uh-huh. And she included me, I was quite young, with the college students whenever she would take them on, on excursions. And uh, she took us once to uh, NBC to see how a radio show was made. And I still picture that, you know, with the, the horses going back to radio days. Um, and she took me to see my first opera. It was uh, um, Prokofiev, uh, Love for Three Oranges. And uh, I, still, I still remember that very well. It was a great moment in my life just to see and our people singing on stage and and with movement and an orchestra and beautiful Prokofiev melodies, you know. Oh, how wonderful. What did your father do for a living? Uh, my father was a window cleaner. Uh-huh. And um, my mother my mother was born in Israel, and they met in the Bronx and were married, and I was the middle of three brothers. And um, so I'll, I'll just say something interesting. I have my, my good friend, Danny Gold, he was in the middle of now editing the film uh-huh. but the but the film we started this kind of backwards because one of the last things that i had done um i i started my career professionally with latin music uh tito puente well i found i discovered latin music when i was about 15 years old i was working in a band uh-huh. in the Casco mountains you know it was a place many of us got started great comics and singers and dancers all yeah. the great comics all of them got started there and a lot of musicians too um and a lot of people started as musicians uh hal linden for example is a good friend of mine he started as a musician uh and became a, a great actor as we fred all know. mcmurray started as a musician who did the actor fred mcmurray oh is that so yeah, and my third professional job, my manager was Jerry Weintraub. My third professional job was in the Catskills. And oh, is that true? Now, yeah. Now, you have two brothers. Are they musical at all? Um, well, coincidentally, I, my, unfortunately, my older brother passed a few years ago. We were all involved in some way in, in music, in show business and theater. My older brother was a, a producer. Uh-huh. He produced uh, musicals like Sophisticated Ladies on Broadway. Wow, how wonderful. Yeah. And uh, he had his own record company, actually. 
My younger brother uh, coincidentally also got into Latin music and he engineered most of the great Latin music records of the late 60s into the 70s. Um, so it's funny how we, we all kind of ended up like this. And, um, but uh, the, several years ago, three years ago, I was invited because of the, my Latin music background. And I, and I one day said to a friend, I wanted to make another Latin record. I hadn't made a Latin record since I was quite young, to my early 20s. And uh, so shortly after that, I had a call from the Minister of Culture of Cuba asking me if I would come there and do some concerts. So, of course, I, I said, yes, I was happy to do that. My friend Danny, who is a wonderful uh, uh, director, filmmaker, he said, I want, I want to film that. That sounds interesting. And so that's how it started. And then... So you ask about how, where did my life start? Only recently, after a lot of filming, which I will tell you about, a lot of filming in Cuba, Paris, Fontainebleau, France, all over, uh, California, obviously. Danny said, I really want to film you where it all started. And um, I'll let you tell the story. Oh, well, we, we went to the Bronx and, you know, filmed on the street, Sedgwick Avenue, where Charlie lived. And, and, uh, and where certain transitional events happened for his life, that it was really great to have him there experiencing it and telling, you know, our cameras about it. So it was a really nice touch. Yeah, but uh, let me ask you the same question. I have, I have a couple of more questions about you personally, Charles, sure, before we um, get to that. So I'm going to, let's go to Danny now. Yeah. Danny, your background, your parents, your family, and... What led you to get into film? Well, my family had nothing to do with show business in any way. Um, What led me to get into film was on my ninth birthday, I got a Super 8 movie camera and a love affair began. Oh, my God. So did Spielberg when he was eight in the backyard. (laughs) I knew it was. I was one year too late. (laughs) (laughs) That's wonderful. And then because it's stuff that you do, the stuff that I saw in HBO is fantastic, but I want to just put you on hold a second because I have a couple of personal questions uh, uh, to Charles. Charles, did you, what were your parents' attitude about the possibility of you earning a living as a musician? And did you meet your wife before you could make a living and support her or after you were more successful? You know, my parents, right from the get-go, were completely supportive. Um, I went to the High School of Music and Art. It was a wonderful school of the arts, and combined later on, years later, the High School of the Performing Arts. And for the last 30 years, there's been the LaGuardia High School of the Arts in New York, probably the preeminent school of the arts in high school students. And there, uh, I met a lot of other wonderful musicians. I was influenced by classical people, jazz musicians. Um, suddenly, uh, everyone played the piano that I knew, you know. And um, when I was young and uh, uh, after school, a lot of my friends would go play basketball. I did that sometimes, but I would usually run home to practice the piano. <laughs> so I met a lot of other people like that. My parents never considered, is this something you can really earn a living? If it was something I wanted to do and loved, they were just behind it. So after high school, 
and I'll, I'll tell you how this played out after high school, I really didn't want to go to a conservatory or college. Um, so I kept studying privately with my composition teacher from high school, my orchestration teacher, and I was playing with bands in New York, Latin bands. Uh, I, then I had the opportunity uh, that my original piano teacher mentioned Nadia Boulanger in Paris. And I never heard her name before, but then I found out that she was this extraordinary teacher who had taught Aaron Copeland wow. uh, early on and, and, and generations of composers. So I had the opportunity to go to France, Fontainebleau, France. It's in the Palace of Fontainebleau. Uh, it's about 40 miles outside of Paris. And it was a thousand-year-old palace. It was Napoleon's summer home. Uh, and there was a conservatory in the summer. And I applied, I was, I was uh, accepted, and my parents had no business paying for this. They couldn't afford it to send me to France, but they were so much behind me and my musical endeavors that they said, go, we'll figure it out. So they sent oh, me to them. France when I was 18 years old and uh, they supported me. I came back when I was 21. Um, and the second part of your question, I met my wife, Joan, when I came home from France, I needed to earn some money now. I'm 21 <laughs> years old, I can't keep being supported. Um, so I went to the Casco Mountains again, I had a job and fortunately my wife, Joan, was a counselor at the camp. And uh, truly it was love, love at first sight for me. It was love at oh first. my gosh. Uh, we're coming up, by the way, I'll just say it's our 60th anniversary in September. Oh my God. So when you first met Joan, did yeah. you write her a love song? I didn't even think of writing anyone a song. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think of myself as a songwriter, to be honest. I, now, I did write Latin songs. I, I thought of myself as, a, as hoping to become a composer, learning the craft of musical composition. I didn't know what direction it would take. I, 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 was, uh, I, I became friendly with Dizzy Gillespie. And he invited me to come to his house and watch his rehearsals. And I ended up writing a lot of things for Dizzy Gillespie. Uh, I was doing Latin. I was going to the Metropolitan Opera to see opera at night and concerts. I, I didn't know what direction it would take. Um, well, because when you look at your body of work, it's like whatever you think of, you do. I mean, it's like you can do absolutely anything. Uh, how many children do you and Joan have? We have three children and seven grandchildren. And, and the three um, children, uh, anyone in music? Well, my, my oldest son is, uh, he plays piano beautifully, by the way, and he does write songs. Uh, he's, a, he's a screenwriter. He's written some wonderful movies. Um, and uh, my middle son is in business. My daughter is uh, an attorney. She's a prosecutor. Oh, how interesting. Uh, okay, Danny, in doing this documentary, did you go to Paris to sort of relive or shoot uh, Charles when he was between 18 and 21? Uh, yeah, absolutely. It was, the idea was, you know, we've, from a geographic standpoint, we've been to every area that sort of Charlie existed in. And Paris was such a transformational time in his musical career. Or, or his beginnings. And uh, we really, and it was so, in reading his autobiography, which I recommend, um, that 
you really see the importance of, of, of meeting and studying with Nadia Boulanger and the effect that it had on his whole life. Now, sure, you can make a documentary. I could stick a camera in his face and tell me about it. But if I could take him to the spot where it happened, if I could take him to the, the apartment where he studied with her, Oh, wow. Or Fountainbleu, the, the conservatory where he studied with her, the, the level of, of um, recollection and effect that it will have on him telling that story is what I wanted to capture because then I think the audience will also be more engaged. Now, let's get to the business of <laughs> how, how I first heard of you, Charlie, in the... Uh, 70s was the wonderful theme songs that you wrote in television. So did that come to you easily uh, from people who approached you or did you have to pursue it? Were you playing in a band at the time? What was going on in your life at that time? So you mentioned Barbarella. Barbarella was my second film um, with Jane Fonda, obviously. And, and um yeah. Uh, I had the, I wrote a, well, actually, I did that film with Bob Crew, one of the great record producers, songwriters. Uh, if you see Jersey Boys, those are all his co-writer of all those songs, as well as, as he discovered and produced the Four Seasons records. So he brought me on to do Barbarella together. He wasn't a composer. He was a lyricist, really. So I did the score. And together, we wrote five or six songs. And just like that, I became a songwriter. <laughs> I didn't so, expect to do that. So know? did somebody hear Barbarella and then think, hey, maybe this guy could write some stuff for television? Well, so the very first picture, that was the second, was a picture called The Incident, the black and white film about two tough guys terrorizing a subway car in the 60s. And my dear friend Larry Pierce, uh, was the first of a number of pictures I did together with Larry. Uh, his next picture was Goodbye Columbus. Yes. And so when I did Barbarella, I did that in New York. The people, that, the folks at Paramount in California didn't know who I was at all. I was just <laughs> brought in by Bob Crew. And so they sent the head of the music department, they sent Hollywood film editors, people to work with me. And, um, and, as a result of that, of seeing me work, then Larry Pierce was able to bring me on to Goodbye Columbus, which was Stanley Jaffe's production. And so my entree to Hollywood was to come out to score Goodbye Columbus, to compose the score and, and conduct it in, in California. It is a terrific film and a fabulous a score. So when you... Do, uh, I, I guess you say Barbarella was your first or your second? It was my second film, yes. The first was The Incident. This, the uh, black and white one. A black and white one, exactly right, yeah. Okay, now when you look at the film, what is the, how do you work? How does a musician like you work? Do you have to lock yourself up privately and just look and look and look at the film until something occurs to you? Well, pretty much so. I mean, I, I usually see a film many times. Um, it usually hits me in terms of what the needs of the films are musically. Um, and then, of course, I'm not alone. I work with the director. So then I go through the film with the director, give him my ideas of where I think music belongs, where it should go, where it should 
end and where it's where and what I can possibly hope to help with it, whether it's underscoring a, a love scene, a dramatic scene, or bringing out some other uh, summer something sub, more subliminal, something under the surface, you know. Uh, it, I think of myself as a storyteller, if you want to know the truth. And I do that with music. I tell the stories of the film. Um, I try to enhance the film and sometimes stay away from the music so that I don't get in the way of the characters. You know, it, I, that hits in, me. In, in doing this, you must have, because you lived through the same era of wonderful black and white movies that I did. I mean, Psycho would not exist without that scene in the shower. Yeah. And Hitchcock didn't want it. It was his wife who made him stick it in there. He absolutely did <laughs> not want it. Yeah, he, did, he did not want it. That's in a really good uh, film about Hitchcock, by the way. So how do you then go from the darkness of the incident to the light and fluffy stuff of sitcoms? You know, it was always a great concern to me not to get stereotyped in one way or another. Um, there are people who've gotten stereotyped during only comedies or only deep, dark, uh, uh, heavily dramatic or intense or, you know, those kind of pictures. I've always enjoyed, you said it before about me, I, I have a, I, I love the different challenges. I love to go from one thing to another and not to get to get stuck in any one era. But I'll, I'll tell you that, um, so when I came out to do Good by Columbus, at the end of it, the head of the music department of Paramount Pictures said to me, we have a pilot of a new show. Uh, would you stay around another month or two in California? I was still living in New York, although I brought my, my wife and, and two children out at that time to, to be with me. Uh, and we have a new pilot, and I think you would be the right person to score. That was Love American Style. Oh, my God. So I, did, I did that. I went back to New York. I got the call one day that it's a series. Now we need you to come back. And that was the, the start. But I have to tell you, um, so I did that. There were two. Um, well, I worked with Gary Marshall. You know, and, and he, he Gary Marshall is one of the writers on uh, on Love America Cell, but Gary Marshall did Happy Days, yeah, um, and of course I did Happy Days for him and two other wonderful friends, Tom Miller and Eddie Milkus, and I did a lot of their shows like Happy Days, like Angie, like uh, um, I, I did a lot of pilots you may not even heard of. One day they were doing a movie because now I felt I was getting stereotyped doing only comedies and uh and they were successful shows i really couldn't complain one day they had a, a movie called women in chains with ida lapino oh my god you're it was, kidding it, was, um, it, it, it wasn't there well i think it was on a lot at paramount and um and uh, it was about a woman who was in prison and, she, and ida lapino was a tough prison guard so i said to them um I really want to do this picture. I never used to do that. I had an agent, of course. But I said to my, my dear friends, uh, I really want to do Women in Chains. I think that, that I, I could do a, you know, a really good job for that. And they said, well, we know you. I mean, you know, we, we love you. But can you do a, a dramatic film? Because they had known me only from these other comedic things. And I said, well, my first picture was the incident. That was as dramatic as... So they said, all right, well, then you, okay, we, you do it. We'd love you to do that. At the same time, 
we have another show. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, now I can't think with the gorilla and the theme. Oh, son of a gun. I can't remember it. Would you do that as well? So I agreed to do. Um, oh, chin, I was called the chimp and I. <laughs> it, was, uh, it was about a Tom. Tom was it? Was it Bessel? Yes, Ted Bessel. Oh, me and the chimp. Me, I was, yeah. Uh, okay, so it was originally called the chimp and I. Chimp and I. <laughs> but then Ted Bessel didn't want to take second billing to the chimp. <laughs> so it's called me and the chimp. Oh, so they said, God. all right, you can do women in chains if you also do, will do me and the chip. <laughs> did Ida Lupino direct that film? She was a very smart woman. Uh, no, no, she did not direct it. She was starred in it. Oh. Was, uh, that may have been a very last picture. She was, she was not young. Oh, my goodness gracious. <laughs> now, Danny, are some of these things and these experiences shown in your documentary? I'm sorry. You mean you mean taking Charlie to Paris? Well, that you've explained, but this business of uh, women in chains as being w- one of the things that he chose to do to be independent. You know, you're only the second artist I've heard really say that out loud who was becoming successful, not want to be uh, um, stereotyped. And the first was Dustin Hoffman. Because after his uh, first uh, uh, film, uh, 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 Graduate, the Graduate, the Graduate, yes, and then he he said, no, not not this, not this, and he went to do Midnight Cowboy. Yes, I know that very well, yeah. Yeah. He was fantastic in both pictures. Oh, he was fantastic in anything he does, and your music is fantastic, and it captures the essence of anything that you do. For you, Danny, what was the high point for, or is the high point going to come up when Charles gets to go to Poland later in the year? What is the high point for you? And maybe what was the toughest part to shoot for you? So I, I, I will just say, if I can answer that, I may, and I'll let him finish it. Okay. Danny and I met actually in Poland in 2009. He was working on a film called A Hundred Voices, A Journey Home. Oh, what a wonderful film. Yes, A Journey yeah. Home. You won a, a, an Emmy or something for that? You no, won. we won some film festivals, but uh, and oh. it, was, it was released in the theaters. Um, and it was it was a beautiful story, and meeting Charlie there in Poland, and you know we we struck up a friendship, but also from a story standpoint, his what he did there was he composed um, what would you call it an oratory an oratory um, yeah. with the words from uh, uh, Pope John Paul II, and he debuted that at the Warsaw Opera House. And it was wow. so dramatic. But the, 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 what I loved in, in working with Charlie on that film was he went back to the village where his father came from. And I think he was the first fox to go back to the actual town and to walk around the town where uh, you know, Charlie's father came from and experience it through Charlie's lens, so to speak, was really something that showed me, first of all, how much I love working with this guy but also what a great what a great story he has and i think you mentioned it you know the diversity of his career 
makes it interesting. Everything he's done from, from the, you know, the game show themes to the TV themes to the film scores to operas to, uh, to um, uh, ballets, he just has excelled so much. I've never seen a career excel in so many different areas. So when he says he doesn't want to be stereotyped, <laughs> you can underline that. <laughs> what, what, how were you contacted by a government to compose something. <laughs> so I'll, I'll tell you how that happened. Um, so we were in Poland. <clears throat> I had written um, an oratorio based on the words of Pope John Paul II. They were beautiful and touching words. He was my lyricist, so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we, I conducted the Polish National Opera Company. We had 100 voices, 40 children's voices, and a 100-piece orchestra that Danny captured magnificently in this film called The Hundred Voices, if anyone wants to see that. While I was there, the Minister of Culture, who was also the head of the opera, said to me one day, it's not this year coming up, by the way, it was, it was 2010 um, that it was his actual um, 200th anniversary, 200th anniversary of Chopin. And, um, and uh, the Minister of Culture said to me, so... I would love you to consider writing a piece, homage to Chopin. Would you please consider it? I said, all right, uh, I've considered it. I'll do it. <laughs> so he said, no, seriously, would you give us some thought? <laughs> I said, I've given it all the thought I need. Oh, <laughs> my. Well, hold on. Did I get it wrong when I said you were commissioned to have it played this year? Yes, was... but I'll, I'll tell you why you're not wrong, though. Uh, so forgive me for just, you know, maybe be corrected. 2010 was the, the actual year that we did that in Poland, in, in Gdańsk. And, and that's uh, in the film that Danny shot? That part of it will be in the film, yeah. Oh, my God, how thrilling. And actually, uh, I conducted two of the great, um, well, uh, Leszek Most is one of the great pianists in, in, in uh, Poland. And Eddie Daniels was one of the greatest jazz clarinetists of all time. I wrote a piece for those two with the chamber orchestra. We had 22,000 people standing um, and watching uh, this concert. And that is part of the film. Yes, that'll be part of the film. But, you, but just this about two or three weeks ago, the school that I went to in France in the Palace of Fontenelle was celebrating the 100th anniversary of the conservatory. And they did a big concert in New York, really just lit, literally a few weeks ago. And they asked me to conduct that same piece that we did in Poland for this concert. So I just did this uh, currently, two weeks ago, again, performed in New York. And it's always great to oh, you know, have music God. performed again. And uh, it was- Oh it, my God, uh, how just wonderful. Okay, so let me ask you a couple of questions about in composing something to celebrate Chopin. <clears throat> Did you ever see the movie with Cornell Wilde? Yes, oh, many, yeah. yes, of course. Okay, so, so let me- ask you this how could you avoid putting in some notes that sounded like the polonaise <laughs> that's just one of many extraordinary <laughs> works that show that show chopin did um oh, and the, and you know the pop song the which Perry, the pop song that perry como made a number one hit oh well the, till the, the end of time yes 
a number of times uh, over over the years, uh, songwriters have taken themes from you know from Boradine's music uh, to "Take My Hand, You're a Stranger in Paradise" from the Boradine uh, Stranger. Yeah. I think it was that happens. In in my case, um, I didn't use any of Chopin's music, but. <laughs> I wrote very Chopinistic style piano um, and that went into jazz that went into more exciting kind of things. But I would say I was just influenced by the music of, of Chopin and the pianistic style of Chopin, which is very much his own style of, because uh, he was, he was not only the great composer that uh, he performed his own music as well. When Chopin would come to, um, to Paris to perform, it was the hottest ticket in town, you might say. It was like <laughs> Billy, Billy Joel now in New York, you know. Um, and the kings themselves of France would 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 bargain to get the best the best tickets. Oh, uh, that's that's when true artists were really yeah. celebrated. I mean, when Charles Dickens went to New York, twenty five thousand people <laughs> met him at the boat. I mean, who would ever? Go to meet an artist today in America, my God. And yeah. just a little thing about Poland. My son uh, uh, went to Poland a little over uh, <laughs> uh, two years ago. And uh, he, he was, uh, my son was a Caucasian Tiger Woods. And he should have been on tour, but he couldn't putt. But he kept the journal. And he, he wrote about the adventures of being a solo golfer, trying to make it on the tour, but he couldn't putt. So he gave up and he went to Hollywood and he started as a gopher. He ended up as co-executive producer on writer, two shows, Criminal Minds and CSI. Oh. And they're bringing back Criminal Minds and he's going to do that again. He said, but a couple of years ago when they went on hiatus, he got a call from Poland's leading production company and wanted him to come over there and help him write some crime dramas. Okay. So he was thrilled to go. He didn't understand a word of Poland. He hadn't been there a week, Charles. And he called me and he says, dad, you'll never believe how good a tomato really tastes. How good a potato really tastes. He said, my God, I could live in this place. So, <laughs> I, so, have to, I have to agree. The fruit is pretty good there. Really oh, is. my gosh. Almighty. So you well, we, we, we used to preservatives here. You know, we get foods, a lot of preservatives. In Europe, mostly they don't, all over Europe, it's mostly fresh, right from the, the farm, you know. Well, you must not only have a healthy appetite. I mean, the fact that you do something you totally love, you look. 20 years younger than you are and you sound 40 years younger than oh, you are. You. You, you just look and sound terrific. Can I tell you something? Yes. The dream never stops. I, I never oh. stop dreaming about what I want to do, what I have yet to do and what I would love to do. And uh, I always, I never stop concerning how lucky I am that I get to do music. I, I get up and you can't see my studio here, but I have my, I have my Steinway uh, piano here and I, I get up every morning and I go to the piano, you know, and uh, I, I never stop feeling fortunate that I can do that and, and earn my living this way. And, uh, and, but it's and, not just the joy you give yourself. It's the joy you give us by the work that it is that you do. Well, I mean, you. God bless the artist, thank really. And, and people like Danny who find the artists and bring them to us and, you know, uh, with all our talent and 
their glory and their intelligence. It's wonderful. So you said the train is still running. Where's the next depot? <laughs> <laughs> I love that. So um, I, um, I actually have two musicals that I just completed. One with Alain Boublil, who uh, wrote a little show called Les Miserables. And he oh. also wrote uh, Miss Saigon. Oh my God. We have a wonderful collaboration. We did a new, we wrote a new show, that, a new idea based on Alain's uh, called Ain't That Jazz? And uh, we're very excited about it. And uh, we'll see, we'll see how that develops. You know, theater, uh, actually right now at this moment, there's, there's a, a lot of interest in it as a musical motion picture. So we, we redid it as a film as opposed to as a stage musical. Uh, but I think it would be a stage musical as well. But uh, we'll see how that develops. You know, the, well, you the, mentioned the title, had the word had jazz. I think one of the really excellent uh, musical movies was uh, Bob Fosse's All That Jazz. Oh, it was great. Bob, Bob Fosse was, was incredible. This is a very, very different kind of a story. This is... Uh, uh, without giving it away, it's, it, it deals with jazz, but it also deals with Paris uh, in the 1970s in America and uh, New York and the, and, a, and a love relationship um, that uh, with a, a lot of very unusual twists and turns. Alan is a wonderful book writer and a marvelous lyricist, and we have a wonderful collaboration. Earlier, I mentioned that you and I lived through the same era of great black and white movies with fantastic composers. Of the few fantastic composers uh, in movies, who were three or four of your favorites? And did any one of them influence you or just inspire you? Well, my very, among my good friends and composers, one of my closest friends was uh, Jerry Goldsmith. Uh Jerry Goldsmith, who did um, 200 films. I, I, he wrote The, the Omen. Yes. Uh, um, I, I, Star I Trek, the motion picture. Which? Star Trek, the motion Star picture. He did all the Star Trek's motion picture. One of the, one of the greatest composers um, of all time in Hollywood. Um, uh, of course, John Williams is fantastic, you know. I mean, I, I can't say, I didn't, I didn't grow up on their music. We we became friends, uh-huh. but, uh, but uh, I mean, uh, Alfred Newman, for example, is one of the most wonderful co- composers, Corn Gold. Um, uh, there were some marvelous composers that, but truthfully, my background was not in trying to emulate the, the composers. Those days, as you say, black and white films, most of them came from Europe. Yes. Most, most of them came from a different kind of symphonic character nature, you know, uh, I was more influenced in my youth by by the the contemporary music. I'm not talking about rock and roll, but I'm talking about contemporary jazz, um, even the Beatles, back rack, uh, um, um, uh, you know, people whose whose work kind of um, emulated the time that we were living through. And when I started to do pictures, I just used all of my all of the utensils I had, I had the palette. Yeah, you know, I have the musical palette. Well, the amazing, the amazing thing, Charles, about your work, it transcends the society in which you grew up in. 
I mean, I look at a society, I must say, that is on the verge of deteriorating. I mean, I came from television where once upon a time we had such a thing as a fairness doctrine, and we had equal time, all of which existed. Uh, uh, we had a free press, which no longer exists at all. If you're 30 years of age in this country, you don't know what a free press is. But your music grows while the society around you seems to be shrinking. Do you feel that way? You know, I, I love I love opportunities to do new things. I love challenges. Um, I, I've written, I've done some ballets, you know, for the San Francisco Ballet Company, and like my, my collaborator Michael Smuin, who was head of the company that commissioned me to write this ballet based on an American, a Native American theme, called the Song for Dead Warriors. And wow. so when we got into doing that uh, ballet, we we went together to. Uh, to uh, Missoula, Montana. We spent a few days on an Indian reservation. I read a lot of books about the Native Americans. I listened to a lot of their records. I went to American Indian Movement meetings with Russell Means. Oh my gosh, how interesting. So just to absorb the, the, um, the characters, just to absorb the people, to feel the empathy. Some of the, some of the most beautiful writings really came from Native Americans, uh, Chief Joseph and uh, Red Cloud even. So I, I, I absorbed all this. And then well, when I started to write music, I put it aside and wrote my own music. Yeah, you were the musician to the Pope and now you're the musician to Red Cloud, okay? That's but I love that. I love, I love those. Oh my God, that's wonderful. Is, is, is his visit, Danny, to the Indian nation of being with Russell, Russell means, is any of that in your documentary? Well, we, we hope so. Yes. It's oh. a, a great story. Oh, my gosh. So are you in the middle of shooting that documentary now or in the middle of editing it? I think well, we're, we're, I would say, at the tail end of shooting it, and we're well into editing it. So we're sort of simultaneously uh, working both sides. And, and what are you going to call it? Right now, what's resonating is, you know, Charlie could give you the full name, but what, what I really like is the musical journeys, plural, of Charles Fox. Oh, my God. That's the perfect title. That is absolutely the perfect title. And when do you expect it to be released? Will it be released theatrically or will it go on one uh, uh, HBO or Showtime well, again? Well, this time, what we did with this film is we we're doing it completely independently so we can finish our creative thought and then we'll enter the marketplace. Oh, well, good. But our, goal, our goal is first theatrical. Well, oh, my gosh. I think that's just absolutely fantastic. Um, I'm having the time of my life, by the way, doing <laughs> this, you know, revisiting places I've been. We were in Paris, so Danny said, I think it'd be a great idea if you uh, do an evening in a jazz club. <laughs> oh, that would be wonderful. But you know what? If there's not a song called that, write one, the time of my life. I mean, you could do that overnight, over, over a cocktail for crying out loud. As talented as you are. <laughs> yeah, my God almighty. Wait, let I, me write that down. Okay, I got it. <laughs> You know, to me, sadly, oh, I love listening to your song again. I love, 
listening to uh, Roberta Flack again. The other song that just tears me apart when I listen to it besides yours is the first time ever I saw your face. Well, I wish I could take, I, I could take, I didn't write that one, you know that. Oh, uh, I know you didn't write yeah. that one, but. It's I a, wish I had, but I mean. <laughs> it is. No one it, asked me. <laughs> it, is, it is a beautiful, beautiful song, but. It is, yeah. I, and the, what's, what I feel now is America no longer has romantic, they don't write love songs anymore. I mean, that's another title for another song. They don't write love songs anymore. The only place now, it seems, Charles, where you can hear a song, I mean, in the 30s and 40s and 50s, even the 60s, when they were writing ballads, they were like, because you said you were a music storyteller. Yeah. And when Sinatra, I was Sinatra's private writer for four and a half years. He said he never chose the music. He always chose the lyrics because lyrics told the story. He believed in telling a story when he, he sang a song. And in those four decades, they were mini stories in these great love songs. Yeah. I don't hear that anymore in America, except in country music. The only place you can go now in country music. You and know, I, I, I think you're right. Country music has always um, loved songs that have songs with stories and, and love songs. And um, they, they still very much like uh, the country music still has very much a pop flavor to it, if not yes. real country. And they like to tell stories. That's true. I, I was very lucky in, in my life to work with some of the greatest lyricists. And so I, I and I, if truth be told, I prefer to work to a lyric. I've worked with different ways of different people, starting with a, uh, you know, Sammy Kahn was once asked, was, oh, I, I wrote songs with Sammy Kahn, too. Uh, Sammy Cohen was once asked, what comes first, the music or the lyrics? And he says, the phone call. <laughs> that's, that's great. It's but one of your, and one of your more popular words, the words of the Pope came first. <laughs> that's true. So uh, I, I work you're, with, working, um, you're working with Hal David now on something, aren't you? Well, I, I wish I were. Hal was a dear friend. Hal, Hal did pass away a number of years oh, ago. Gosh, I uh, didn't know wrote, that. Yeah. Um, we still see his uh, his lovely. Who was, who was his partner? He well, how they Bert Bert Bacharach. Yeah, Bacharach, but I never thought that Bacharach gave Hal David the credit he deserved. I say, hate to say that about Hal because he was written some wonderful song, but he, when I had my show years ago on ABC, Hal came on as a guest, and Bert wouldn't come on as a guest to be with him, which I thought was awful because. Hal's lyrics were just fabulous, as was Bert's music. Well, I, I, I mean, I can tell you that Bert very much loved Hal's lyrics, and and they they were a great combination together. Um, and Hal didn't suffer any loss of any any fame. I mean, everyone knew how great Hal David was. He was also, by the way, the president of ASCAP for many years, and uh, and he was. Um, you know, the difference is Hal wasn't really a performer, although now and then um, he did, you know, he did uh, sing a song or two of his, you know. Uh, one time we, we, wrote a, we wrote a song for one of the shows we did. Hal and I did a lot of, we wrote maybe 50 or 60 songs together over the years. And um, we were going out for dinner 
and um, we we went to uh, we my wife and I went to pick him up, and his his wife said, uh, "Let me let me hear one of the songs that you've been working on." So I said, "All right, let's do the duet. I'll sing this, you sing that." <laughs> And then, so we finished doing that, the two songs, and he said, usually with Bert, I didn't get to sing. <laughs> and now the president of ASCAP is Paul Williams. Yes, now, so Paul's another dear friend. Paul's in this movie, too, by the way. Oh, he is. Tell me about your meeting with Paul, because I was a very close friend of Paul's for a couple of years in Los Angeles, and I was his opening act at the Universal Amphitheater. Oh, really? Uh, I didn't know that. Oh. Yeah, when I was doing a stand-up. Uh, anyway, tell us about, the, and Paul's, and if you if you have a chance, if you go to my website, www.johnbarbersworld.com, you will see the best interview Paul Williams ever did on television. I mean, he just was adorable, and then he crashed for about 10 years into drugs and all kinds of stuff and had the most amazing recovery and ended up now being the president of ASCAP. So tell me about putting Paul in the film, Dan. Well, I mean, Paul plays a a significant role in in Charlie's uh, career, but... uh, In what way? Well, I mean, they wrote wrote, uh, the the music, the songs for the film One on One with Robbie Benson really we wrote the love boat together the love and then yeah. the love boat of course yeah. oh my god and actually they wrote a song for the last film i did not the last one the film before the last one called the bronx usa charlie and uh paul wrote a song called the bronx which got shortlisted for oscar consideration and oh my god and you I, know his yeah. career was a bank commercial uh, started with a bank commercial. We've only just begun. Yeah, yeah. That was just one of those things that that you never expect in life. He wrote this beautiful song and became a commercial. Uh, Paul is one of the great songwriters of all time, and Paul is one of my dearest friends too. We've written a number of songs together, and uh, and I, I'm really proud of Paul. I always tell him, how, you know, how what he's accomplished in his life, um, because he now represents four hundred fifty thousand music composers and publishers and, and lyricists and authors. And um, he has he has brought so much to the value of one's music. Um, and uh, he's great and, and continues to write his beautiful songs. And uh, all that. Well, you worked with him and wrote those wonderful songs is fabulous. Now, I could never imagine you getting into a position of being a corporate president. I can only imagine you at a piano all day long. For all I'll, night I'll long. take that image. I'll take that image. Thank you very much. Oh. Uh, but if you want to know the truth, I was also um, for a number of years, the governor of the Motion Picture Academy, representing the music branch of oh. the Academy. Yeah. Oh, good for you. So- I didn't leave my piano chair to do that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, honest to goodness, I can't tell you how thrilled I am. I am, I'm just a total, total lover of music. My, uh, my uh, wife sang when uh, Earl Father Hines left uh, the uh, uh, Louis Armstrong sextet because he didn't like Louis's lifestyle. 
and he moved to San Francisco and he had a big band. My wife became his singer. Oh, really? And, yeah, and she said, oh, cool. yeah, she's uh, uh, your age, uh, Charles, and she still sounds like Ella Fitzgerald. I could li- I just am a, a junkie for music. I, uh, you know, it's true. I don't care what Socrates said, but an unexamined life is not worth living. It's not worth living if it doesn't have music like yours in it and creative people like you in it. So I cannot thank you and Danny enough for spending this day after Memorial Day here with me. I just loved it. So thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you thank too, John. I, I've enjoyed it too. I'm, I'm sure Danny has. It. And uh, just, uh, as I say, I've been a fan of yours for many years. So I was, I'm happy to see you maybe one day, not just on Zoom, but meet, meet again in person. Oh, in person. I would and, love, uh, truly I would love to do that. And, okay, right. what I would love to do is trade books. I'm going to go get your book, uh, Killing Me Softly. I'm going to order it from Amazon. Okay. But if you and Danny give Harlan your uh, post office box or home address, I'm going to send you a copy of my autobiography. It's called Your Mother's Not a Virgin, The Bumpy Life and Times of the Canadian Dropout Who Changed the Face of American Television. I will tell you, <laughs> as a former critic, it is by far the best book ever written about anybody in show business. So, well, if you can start off laughing with the title of the book, you know there's a good book beyond that. <laughs> well, thank you again so much. And oh my gosh, good luck. And if I were religious, I'd say God bless, but I'll say it anyway. God bless both of you. And thank you all for watching. And we'll see you again in another two weeks with another wonderful Talking Movies. <laughs>